welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with my co-host, Brayden Pazeski. Brayden is the co-founder and CTO at Unstoppable Domains, and he's here today to talk to me more about scaling on the blockchain and L2s, continuing on from our conversation from the previous weeks. If you haven't listened to our podcast episode from last week and the week prior, make sure you go back and listen to that. We talk about some of the problems that we face with scaling on the blockchain today, as well as some of our state-of-the-art solutions that we have. And today we're going to continue that conversation. Brayden is going to break everything down for us and uh, tell us how we can fix some of the problems that a lot of you are experiencing right now with high gas fees and all the issues that are preventing you from making all the transactions that you want to make on the blockchain. So, hey, Brayden, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So to start us off, let's just go ahead and talk about some of the state of the art solutions. In our last episode, we talked with Matt Gold about some of the solutions like state channel, side chains, plasma, optimistic rollups, ZK rollups. Today, we're going to break that down. So basically, there are two questions that everybody needs to ask when designing an L2 or a layer two solution on the blockchain. And what are those two questions? Sure. So the two questions are whether or not you want to verify the, the state of the L2 with cryptographic proofs on the L1. And then the other question you want to ask is around data availability, which we can kind of cover what that is once we once we get there. Um, okay, cool. Let's just dive right in then. It's probably easier to talk about those things in context. So the four that we're going to talk about today are Plasma, Optimistic Rollups, ZK Rollups, and Validium. And each of these four are sort of placed into the four quadrants of answering the questions that you just stated, yes or no. And so why don't we start with, uh, is Plasma a good one to start with? Yeah, that's actually fantastic. Great, um, let's start with that. So essentially, Plasma answered no and no to both of the questions. And so let's just kind of look at what that means. So L2s, the basic the basic kind of life cycle of an L2, and when someone like submits a transaction to the L2 is the user deposits their assets or locks their assets up on the L2. The And then the operators of the L2 like receive these transactions, process these transactions, and then submit commitments to the L1. So these commitments are basically like L2 blocks. So users submit transactions to the L2. These transactions are pending until the uh, commitment on the L1 is made. And so all the different L2s basically have rules around like governing what these commitments look like, who can make these commitments. And so on-chain cryptographic verification is really verifying that these commitments are correct cryptographically. So when you when you submit a transaction to the blockchain normally, the way it works is you you sign it with a private public key pair that proves that you own a private key, right? And 
L2s are basically designed as systems to kind of compress data. So if you were going to do the same validation, it would cost like basically an equivalent amount of gas. But the goal is to try and simplify what you're committing to the and like compress that data. And that's where the cost saving comes in. So the way the way ZK rollups and Validium do this is they use zero knowledge proofs, but Plasma and other solutions that don't use on-chain cryptographic verification use like crypto economic games to enforce correctness. So the idea here is that the operators of the L2, when they take a bunch of transactions and they like bundle it up into these commitments and then put it on chain, they're basically trusted by default. And this is like, this is the optimistic part of both plasma and, and optimistic rollups. We basically trust them by default, but then users can submit fraud proofs and they have ways of slashing stakes that these L2 operators put up in order to run these blockchains. And that's that's kind of the general mindset around like not doing cryptographic verification. And of course, it's much cheaper to do it this way because if you don't have to verify that like some user sent some funds to somebody else, then like it's just cheaper on chain. And so you can get ridiculous speeds up speed ups of like a thousand X with these kind of solutions. And there's really no um, limit in theory to throughput because you can just load more and more transactions. And because you're not doing any verification on the individual transactions, you're just kind of checking if there's fraud, you can just get ridiculous speed speed ups with that. It's sort of to your safety, your uh, safe security point about you know, not using cryptographic on-chain for Plasma is, I assume it's a it's a pretty safe assumption to assume that everything is safe already without having to use the cryptographic verification, or is that something that we don't know? Like, how confident are we about that right now? So essentially, kind of the way it all works is you, like Plasma operators, submit commitments to their they're L2. And then there's a period called a challenge period where users and any account on the system can go and say, hey, you know, I don't believe that block, right? And I want you to prove that you that you like created this block correctly. And they 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 have to respond within that week in order to like see that the chain is valid. It does require users to to challenge and kind of be actively monitoring. But the idea is that these chains have like rewards in place so that like there's always going to be an economic incentive for someone to be kind of watching the watching the plasma chain and like making sure that they submit challenges to bad blocks that's that's kind of the the general game theory around it okay gotcha and so then the other part of plasma is that it also does not use on-chain data availability and so what does that mean yeah so so data availability is is really where Plasma kind of falls short. So let's take the case where the L2 operators are acting poorly. They're acting maliciously. They're, they're not processing certain users' transactions. So in this case, the only real recourse users have, and this is for all L2s for the most part, is to exit the L2. And so this is what's called a like a mass exit. And when you're exiting the L2, you have to 
correlate, right? Because there's no there's no state of the L2 directly stored on L1. So you've got to prove that you own assets that are deposited on the L2. So because it's basically a black box, like when you deposit your funds on the L2, they're like locked in a vault, right? With all the other ether. But if someone says like, you know, I want to I want to withdraw all this USDC or all this all this ERC twenty or all these NFTs from the plasma chain. You need to prove that you actually own own that asset on the L two, right? Because someone might have transferred it to you, or like you might have deposited it but transferred it to someone else and are trying to like just take it back and run because you made some trade on the L two, right? So. The pr this proof of ownership is called witness data. And so at the time of exit, users need to be able to provide this witness data, right? And this witness data, you can derive it if you know the whole state of the L2. So technically, it's it's a Merkle proof. I don't know. Have you guys talked about this or is this a little too? Now, this is a new one. So if you can break it down for us, that'd be great. Sure. So Merkle trees is our, it's, it's, it's a hash tree. And so I'll explain what this means. So you basically, what happens is you take a bunch of, you take a bunch of data and most data in like kind of the blockchain space is stored this way. So say you've got a list of transactions, say, right? The way, the way a Merkle tree is constructed is you hash each of those transactions and then you build a tree where each node hashes the previous trees like subtrees. So what this means is that you can like take an enormous bunch of data and you can hash it in such a way where if like somebody messes with one of the values like deep in the tree, the hash at the very top of the tree is messed up. So this is this is like how how blocks are formed, right? They're basically complex Merkle tree structures where like a transaction is part of is part of the hash, the timestamp is part of the hash. And so what plasma chains do is and like what they actually commit to the layer one is they is they they commit the hashes. So it's just a series of hashes that represent the state of of the plasma chain. And so you have to you have to provide a proof that you are one of the leaves in that big hash tree. So like each block, each commitment represents a section of the state, right? And so you have to prove that you own the the leaf inside that specific state. That's that's generally how it works. So you need this witness data in order to exit. But the problem is is that this witness data isn't available on chain, right? So like in Ethereum this 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 Merkle state is stored in every single node. So they are they have access to it and they can prove that you own these assets and you can like execute smart contract transactions and stuff like that. But for a layer two, they just have the representation of the state. And so if you don't have access to if you don't have access to the Merkle tree, then you can't generate the proof that lets you claim your asset. And so the problem that plasma chains ran into is what's called the data availability problem where users don't have access to their data specifically like their witness data to get out of the plasma chain so that's that's kind of the general data availability problem 
you you need this data like the merkle tree data in order to to exit the blockchain but it has to go through these plasma operators so there's like a kind of a trust breakdown there okay gotcha and just to like sort of make this feel a little more tangible for our listeners, what would be a situation where a user would want to exit the blockchain and would need that witness data that they can't get with Plasma? Sure. Well, say the Plasma, like the Plasma operators won't publish any blocks, right? So a lot of these Plasma chains work by like operators staking in order to, in order to have the rights to get on. So let's say someone malicious staked money to become a plasma operator published a block but and that block was valid they kept on proving it but they refused to publish that data then like those users are basically locked on the l2 so you can use it to you can use this this attack vector to lock people on the l2 so that basically for users, that means that they can't complete a transaction, whatever that transaction might be. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Well, it re- what it really means is they can't get off to the L1. And because they control the funnel for publishing transactions on the L2. So I guess you're right. Yes. They can't publish transactions. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a denial of service um, attack, Got basically. It. Got it. Okay, cool. So that was a lot on Plasma. So just yeah. to sort of summarize a little bit, the... Would it be fair to say that the sort of the biggest pro to using Plasma is that it's super fast? Yes. And then the biggest con is that it's hard for users to get off of the the L2 because yes. there's they can't get the witness data on chain. And there's also kind of there's a, there's some other weird like crypto economic things where it's hard to for example it's hard to store more value on a Plasma than the Plasma is secured with. And so it makes operating a plasma very expensive because there's always kind of this like looming economic reason to just stop the plasma chain. There's all sorts of like side cases that that kind of popped up when they were initially designing these protocols that caused people to look for other protocols. So like optimistic rollups, which I think is what we're tackling next, right? Yep. They they Yeah, we can roll into that. Yeah. So they they basically were like I think we're okay with kind of no verification of state. So users can, or sorry, plasma operator, or sorry, optimistic rollup operators can just publish commitments as they want. And we're okay with this kind of fraud proof mechanism where there's this challenge period and, and users monitor the rollup, but we really want users to be able to withdraw. And so that they, they added data availability. And that's kind of the major innovation there. And then they, the, the optimistic rollup guys have also done some very smart things with optimistic rollup chains are basically just like copies of Ethereum. So smart contract and developers, like smart contracts work just as they do on the L1 is what I'm trying to say. So developers can easily build applications. They can, yeah. It works just like Ethereum does. So then what what is like the biggest con or the biggest problem with optimistic rollups? The the fact that there's no on-chain verification of like state transitions because like operators can still publish bad information and there's no no way to stop that from happening. Yeah. So you 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 end up with these complex 
economic games to to stop it from happening. And typically these economic games have like holes or ways that they're like just a little little more complex and they require users to be online all the time. There're just a lot of caveats. Um Right, right. So then I guess the solution to that is to build in the cryptographic verification. And that brings us to ZK rollups, which there's actually a famous quote from Metallic. He said, five to 10 year timeline, ZK rollups will win all use cases. So that that's a big hyping, statement. So <laughs> tell, yeah, <laughs> lots of hype there. So tell us more about what ZK rollups are and why there's so much hype around it. Sure. So ZK rollups use cryptographic verification in order to make these state changes on chain. And they also, I don't think we mentioned this, but the term rollup specifically, so anytime you hear the word rollup in the context of an L2, means that they have data availability on chain. So they actually publish the data inside the inside the call data of a Solidity contract. So they don't so when, when people say they store the data on chain, what they actually mean is like they don't store it inside the contract because like everyone, everyone kind of knows that storing stuff in Ethereum is expensive, but there's like actually there, there's cheaper ways than like actually putting it inside the EVM storage. You can, you can keep it inside the transaction receipts and that's, that's the way all these rollups work. But Let's go back to let's go back to rollups real quick. So they do they use zero knowledge proofs. That's where the ZK comes from. And then they also store they store all the data on chain inside the call data. So that means that like if you're a server, you can recreate the state of the L2 by just looking at the Ethereum blockchain and like looking at the transaction receipts, which is really nice because it means that like anybody can do decentralized reading of these rollups so it has like nice censorship qualities and it also because like each state is verified cryptographically it means that you can like you're never going to run into a situation where like the state might be wrong or there's like some challenge period around the state right like the it as soon as it gets processed it's it's valid like this is the beauty of zero knowledge rollups so it's it's much simpler from like a conceptual standpoint because basically what happens is like a user sends their transaction over to the L2 operator, the L2 operator makes a cryptographic proof, publishes it on chain along with all the data. And you know, as soon as that transaction is published that like it's set in stone. So it's, it's, it's much simpler. And as a result, there's like less edge cases around it, which is why it's so nice. And Ethereum also last year got a major price saving like EIP in so an Ethereum pr improvement proposal that like cut the gas cost down. So it's literally like a fourth the cost to store call data inside the receipts. So there are like lots of things going for it. And, and also like Vitalik is, has been pretty insistent that he wants to kind of prioritize this type of scaling solution when ETH 2.0 comes out. So there, there's going to be cost saving there. Got it. So when you're storing everything on chain, wouldn't that slow things down or how, how do does. they maintain speed? So, so, well, yeah, so this is what I was trying to get at earlier is you don't, you don't store it in the same way that you store like your ERC 20 token on chain. So that, 
that storage that you're accessing when you're storing that ERC20 token is actually like it's it's storage that smart contracts can access and modify. So, but the storage that we're storing it on is like let's let's actually take a step back here. So, like when you're when you're writing a solidity program, which is the smart contract language on Ethereum, you basically you write this contract which is like a class and it's got all these methods on it that say like you should transfer from A to B. You should, you can withdraw, you can do whatever, right? So you write this, you write this function call, right? And these function, this function call has arguments. So it has like, you can put an integer in the first slot, you can put an address in the second slot, right? The way these like zero knowledge proofs get stored is they get stored as arguments to the function. So typically when you put an argument inside the function, the way like an ERC20 token is stored is it takes that argument and then it puts it inside like the smart contract storage and it can modify it and do whatever. But if you just like leave it there inside the function call, like and you don't do anything with that argument, you just consider it like additional data that like comes in along with the function call. You can actually like access that data by scanning the transaction receipts because when you submit a transaction, you are also submitting that big long list of like, this is who owns what on the L2. That's kind of the way it works. So you just discard the function argument. That's like a little really, really technical, but it's, okay, it's so different it's and it's much cheaper. And you you still get like 100x speedups with zero knowledge proofs, but it's not like thousands of times speed up, right? So you can still get fast, much more efficient, like blockchain transactions, but it's just, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not as fast because you've got to verify those, those cryptographic proofs on chain. Got it. So if I were to relate this sort of back to like something that we're all familiar with, like a traditional contract, like you see a piece of paper, it's got all this all these words on it and it's got blanks where you can fill in the you know key information that differ from one agreement to the next and so with how you're describing this data being stored it's like instead of with every transaction you have to store this entire contract with you know a thousand words or however many words are in the contract you only have to store the blanks the words in the blanks that you're filling in like the things that are different from transaction to transaction Kind of. <laughs> it's like it's uh you you what the cost is the cost associated with storing stuff on Ethereum is like storing it in this special memory that that you that like smart contract can access. But you don't store it there. You store it in like the cheaper transaction receipt memory, which is like the same way that like balances are stored. Like it's 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 just cheaper and it's a little it's a little hacky but it's just cheaper yeah got it okay so the main problem with zk rollups is that it's not as fast as some other solutions yeah. but otherwise it's a pretty solid solution it is pretty solid so the one of the big there's two technical limitations and kind of things that dictate how efficient zero like zk rollups are so it's the cost to verify proofs on chain so these rollups are very, or sorry, these zero knowledge proofs are very expensive to verify on chain. So it's like 5 million gas, which comes out to be like half an eighth 
something like that each time you verify. So it's very expensive to verify these proofs on chain. But it is like, depending on your zero knowledge proof, it is it is almost fixed cost. But the problem is that like, in order to generate these proofs, it takes a lot of computation like off chain. So there's actually like, you can, you can generate these proofs in pretty close to linear time, which means that if you like, if you give me 10 transactions, it might take me 10 seconds to make a proof. And if you give me 100 transactions, it will take me 100 seconds to make a proof. But that there's like kind of a problem there where if like you're limited by how fast you can like, like if you can make a proof for one transaction in one second, that means your maximum transaction throughput for the blockchain is never going to be faster than one second per transaction, right? And so currently as it stands, at least for Unstoppable, that number is around like 2.7. This is like kind of an estimate, but it's around 2.7 per second. So it's great, right? But it's still not perfect. And there's no way to overcome this other than like making special chips and stuff, which I mean, maybe will happen, but we need, we need some more traction in order for that to work. So you're, you're, you're always going to be limited by like kind of the complexity of generating these zero knowledge proofs. Got it. Okay. Let's move on and talk about the last one, which is, so this solution, they, it does use cryptographic verification on chain, but it does not use on-chain data availability. So talk more about Validium. Sure. So the idea here is that we want all those properties like that cryptographic verification on-chain provide us. And that's mostly that there's never going to be an incorrect state on-chain, right? So you never have to worry about bogus state updates, right? So users can see that like the Merkle root is what it is and it makes sense and it's never going to be invalid, right? And this is this is big from uh, like a usability perspective, especially for like an application like blockchain domains, because it would really suck if you like transacted with somebody or you and you wanted to send it to their name, right? And like cryptocurrency to their name. And you saw that like there was a pending update on that domain and it was going to take a week to resolve, right? That would be like a non-optimal user experience. So it's really nice that this cryptographic verification happens on chain because you get finality within minutes, which you don't get with these other options, but basically takes the stance that it's too expensive to store all this um, data on chain. So you can, for some perspective, if you submitted like 10,000 um, transactions using a ZK rollup, let's say you spend 5 million gas on the proof, you're going to spend an additional 16, 16 million like publishing the call data for the data availability. So it's actually like extremely expensive at scale to do this data availability. And especially for like, yeah. So Validium basically says, hey, we're not going to store the data directly on chain, but we are going to give users ways to punish the blockchain if they don't publish the data. So Validium uses a committee of, uh, of accounts that can basically say, hey, we're going to like stop the blockchain, we're going to, or we're going to slash funds, or we're going to 
punish the L2 operators if they don't publish the data within a reasonable time frame. And there's there's other mechanisms that that Validium solutions could use to sort of mitigate like the withdrawal problems associated with like not having data available on chain. Got it. And then isn't there also some like weird signature with Validium or something like that? I mean, you're like for ZK rollups and for Validium, you're 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 using the same like virtual machine, so to speak, on the L2. So they're both gonna have those those issues. Although it's not a given. So there's there's zero knowledge proof systems that use like Ethereum private keys and stuff like that. But it's not a given. Like there's they're called circuit builders. I don't know if anyone wants to look this up, but zero knowledge circuit builders. And there's there's open source ones. Zero knowledge proofs have been out for a while. And so there's like a variety of projects there. Got it. Okay, cool. So that was a lot that we just went through. I'm going to summarize real quick. Basically, when you're building an L2 solution, the two main questions that you're asking is whether or not to use on-chain cryptographic verification, and then whether or not to use on-chain data availability. The four solutions we went through were Plasma, Optimistic Rollups, ZK Rollups, and Validium, which fall into the four different quadrants of those two questions. Any final thoughts on this, Brayden, before we close out? No, but... It's great to work on blockchain. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Brayden, for explaining all of these scaling uh, state-of-the-art solutions to us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope you learned something new. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.